You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. We're just going to walk through each of these prophecies in Haggai. And the main purpose of doing it is to just practice trying to see what those little messages are, the message within the message. Okay. And again, Haggai is one of those prophetic books that is very nice because it's, it's pretty obvious where those transitions are. And none of the prophecies are too crazy, you know. We're going to get into Zechariah tomorrow. Different story. You got, you know, feels more like Ezekiel or Daniel or a mix of the two with a little bit of revelation in there. And so that one is is harder to put together. Uh, but Haggai, I think, is a great place to practice trying to understand these messages within the message that the prophet's giving. All right. So we're going to go through and I want you guys to answer these questions. So with the first prophecy, says, when is this prophecy taking place? Do you guys see where that is? We're looking at Haggai chapter 1. Congratulations. Second year of Darius, sixth month, the first day of the month. So we know that this is taking place during the reign of Darius. So you had Cyrus, right? And they come back during the reign of Cyrus and that Darius is going to be the next king. So there is a little bit of time that is going to pass from when they're starting to build and when this is happening, right? And does anybody remember back in Ezra what is taking place as they get back? They're going to start building and then what's going to happen? I heard a whisper of it. What? No, we just heard Israel was greater than the Lord's. Yeah, so we have opposition happening, right? Is there any other thoughts? (laughs) 
All good. We have, we'll have lots of opportunities to try to respond today. Um, so in Ezra, we can remember that the building starts. They're going to be, Zerubbabel is talking to the adversaries that come, and they're going to stop building, right? They're going to stop building, and this is going to happen for a while. And then Ezra says it happens from the reign of Cyrus all the way until the reign of Darius. So this is when we can kind of imagine that this prophecy is coming to take place. Okay, so it's happening in the second year, sixth month, on the first day of the month. And who is uh, who is Haggai speaking to? More specific. What is that? He's speaking from God. God is going to speak through him. What? Yep. You got Joshua, and then there's one other guy. Yeah. Right. So you have Zerubbabel and you have Joshua. And Zerubbabel is what? Well, yeah, he's a family, but his, his role currently is the governor. Okay, so he's, you have the governor and you have the high priest. Okay, so he is speaking to the leaders of the community. And then finally, this one maybe will take a, a little bit more time. I want you to read through that first prophecy again. And I want you to try to maybe pick a verse or in a sentence, think about what is the prophet trying to communicate. So just take a minute and read through that real quick again. All right, we'll give you guys another chance here. Does anybody think they can kind of sum up what the prophetic message is or what's the main idea? Perfect. Good job. That's what I found too. In verse 4, it says, It is time... Uh, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So Haggai is going to be communicating to them what happened, right? You came back, you had this decree, you were supposed to come back and start to build the temple, and then there's been some opposition, some things have been hard, and you just gave up. You stopped, and you have been more concerned about building your own house. If you go back to Ezra... Let's jump to Ezra again. There we go. If you guys remember in Ezra 3, when they build the temple, 
right? They're going to do it because they're desperate to have a place to worship for God. So it seems like they get back and they recognize they need God and they need this place to worship. But then when this opposition starts, for whatever reason, that is going to discourage them to the point of just saying, nah, and they're just kind of, it seems like they're just kind of living life, right? They got to find a place. They got to get a roof over their head. They're trying to maybe get some food and things like that. So they're just kind of going through life and they have left the work of the temple reconstruction on the side. And so um, here we have Haggai is going to be challenging the leaders to, to, to start again, to build again. And so, and it's going to give some some clarity of maybe why they are feeling dissatisfied. It says, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own, busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and all that the ground brings forth on man and beast and all their laborers. So because of this, God is saying there is, there's this drought that's happening. He's going to explain this is why you are in this drought and in this famine. It's because you have stopped building the house of the Lord. You have gotten distracted and discouraged. And this is why this is taking place. Okay, and so, and then in verse 12, you see the response. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as their Lord God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. This is really cool because there is an immediate response. There's a lot of times in the story of the kings and in the prophets where they go for generations and the prophet is preaching and preaching and preaching, and there is no response. They could care less. They don't think his words have a lot of weight. Here, at least, they are going to remember, um, I think, remember who they are, remember who God is, and they are going to heed the prophet's word. Okay. The other thing I want to point out here is that he is speaking specifically to the leaders. So the leaders are the ones that are going to be getting this behind the scene information. Okay. The leaders are the ones that are um, being challenged and they are the ones that are held responsible for the um, lack of progress or them not building the temple. And they are the ones that are going to be given this information about why the drought is happening. Okay. If you notice in comparison with this next, um, this next prophecy, I'll give you a break here. Um, it's pretty quick. It says, this one is going to be given to the people, possibly around the same time. But what is he going to communicate to the people? It's very simple. It's just an encouragement. It says, I am with you. So the message that he's giving to the leaders and the message that he's giving to the people are going to be um, different in their tone. right? To the people, it says, you can do it. I'm with you. To the leaders, he's saying, get to work. 
right? You're not doing what needs to be done. And here again, I think you can feel the historical situation. We know that the temple, the foundations maybe are laid, but they have stopped building. But for these two groups of people, how God is going to communicate to them is going to be different. And I think this is a good reminder for us because I think it speaks to these different roles that are, I think are things that we can relate to today. When you have this burden of leadership and responsibility, there is going to be this different level of information that is maybe necessary or needed to, to do the work you need to do. And you are required to kind of hold this, this thing together and keep things moving. So when things go wrong, you're the one that is in the meetings getting things sorted. The rest of the people, they don't need all that detail. They don't need to know all that uh, behind the scenes stuff. What they need is they need encouragement. And so again, I mentioned this yesterday, but as in YWAM, within YWAM, you will have these different moments where you're leading or you're not leading. And again, for me, this is a good reminder that what is happening in the leadership meetings or the things that are going on there, that's for them. That's the information they need. And if you're a part of that, great. Be challenged by that. You know, be uh, motivated by that. And if you're not in those meetings, you know, you can take this this position of maybe you do need to be corrected or maybe you need to be encouraged, but you don't need all the details. Right? You can just uh, accept what is going on and be willing to, to be a, a good follower. But I love here that God recognizes how hard this is for the people, right? Remember, they're coming back from a lot in Persia. They've been there for 70 years. They have possessions there. They probably have an established house there. And they're going back to a, a city that does not really exist. The walls are broken down. The temple's broken down. So they're going back to a lot of work. And so God is going to recognize that more than anything, they need encouragement. And so that's what he's going to give them. All right. So we want to look at that and we want to pause and say, okay, what in our lives connect to this story? Obviously, we are not rebuilding the temple, but is there something within this prophecy, within this message that speaks to you today about um, your own walk or the own your own work that you're doing? Just take a minute, pause, maybe write down a note. Is there something that speaks to you in this first prophecy.
I think for me, this feels specifically encouraging or when I was reading it and studying it, just that God is willing to continue to remind his people that he is with them. Right? Again, I mentioned this yesterday that I feel like it's a good lesson, at least for me in my life, to remember that just because God's asking me to do something doesn't mean it's always easy. I think that uh, I realize in my own walk that uh, I like easy. <laughs> I like being comfortable, right? I want to uh, indulge in all the good things that I have the opportunity to indulge in. So when there's food, I want to eat it. And when there's a chance to sleep, I want to sleep. And when I can sit there and watch sports and not think, I'd rather do that than, you know, do all the other things that uh, I probably should be doing. And so, uh, you know, in, for example, in preparing to teach this week, this is way outside of my normal day-to-day life now. I have little kids that are around and stuff to fix at home and a job to go to. And when I get home, you know, I've been working outside all day. I just want to take a shower and just kind of chill and not think. And it's been a challenge for me to do this task where it's kind of tedious and you're researching and you need a lot of brain power. Uh, You know, that's been something that when I was in YWAM, it was part of my job. And so I could, you know, I could leave the base for three days and tell my boss like, all right, I'm going to prepare my teaching. I got to go. Or, you know, coming and doing a teaching on another base was like this awesome vacation where you didn't have to do work duties at your own base and you didn't have to go to the meetings and you got to go hang out with different people. So it is a good reminder that, you know, God's work is not always easy, that sometimes it requires something of you. But in this particular piece, I am encouraged that God is reminding them and saying, I'm with you. And I feel like he's saying that to us as well. I am with you. And he's going to repeat that so many times throughout Scripture. I'm with you. I'm still with you. You know, And that doesn't necessarily change the uh, what needs to be done, but I do think it helps remind us of why we're doing it and who we're doing it for. Uh, I, one of the guys that was one of my mentors throughout my time, especially doing logistics, his name's Ron Brewster, Uh, He's out of the base in Montana. He was great because he would always, he was there to listen to me and hear me out, but he never, not never, but he wouldn't do the work for me. So he wasn't going to say, oh man, yeah, that looks really hard, that situation. Oh, don't worry about it. I'll do it for you. No, he, he didn't have the time for one to do that, but he knew that was my job, right? That was my piece of the puzzle. So I was going to be the one to fulfill that. But he was there to listen to me, to give me counsel, uh, to pray with me. And it was through those encouragements that I was like, all right, I can get up tomorrow and do this hard thing. right?" And that he was, for me, a very real um, image of this encouragement that I think the Holy Spirit brings. I think God used him in my life, specifically in that time, to do this thing that was way uh, uh, way out of my uh, comfort zone. It was something that was harder than I'd, uh, something that was bigger than I'd ever taken on before. And because he was there to meet with me and talk with me, I was able to go back 
and do the hard things that I needed to do. So encouragement uh, at the right time and from the right people um, through the work of the Holy Spirit, I think is important. And I'm glad God gives us that gift. All right, let's look at the next prophecy here. So we're going to start in chapter 2. And can anybody tell me when this next prophecy takes place? That's right. In the seventh month. So the first prophecy was when? Uh, Right. So you had the sixth month and now on the seventh month. So a month later, you're going to be given another prophecy. And who is uh, who is the prophet speaking to this time? We got Zerubbabel, good. We got Joshua, good. And to all the remnant. Okay, so this one is given to the to the whole group, right? You got the leaders and the people. They are both going to be receiving this next prophecy. Okay, and now let's take a minute, reread that prophecy, and we're trying to find. What's the main idea? What's the prophet speaking to his people? Perfect. It's another encouragement. Um, Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. So it's going to start out, and you have Haggai bringing some correction, pushing the leaders forward, saying, you can do better. You're better than this, right? Get focused. Get to work. He's going to encourage the people. And then here in chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 2, he's going to say to all the people, keep working. I am with you, declares the Lord. It's also interesting that in in verse 5, he's going to, again, remind them of the covenant that came out of Egypt, right? So he's reminding them all the way back at the beginning. Remember when you were coming out of Egypt. Remember who I was and what our people went through. That's the image that should hopefully encourage you. I was with them then. I am with you now. It says, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. And this is an interesting uh, an interesting phrase because is the temple rebuilt? Yes or no at this time? No, still not rebuilt. And even if it is rebuilt, what happened in Ezekiel? Anybody remember? Right. The presence of the Lord is going to leave the temple. So one of the big questions they're having, and Ezekiel is also going to speak to this, is where does where did God go? Did he leave? Does he leave us? And throughout this post-exilic period and into the New Testament, they are going to be stretched in their understanding of how God works because God is going to again try to communicate. He while he wants to have this image of dwelling with them, he is not confined to the temple. He is, his presence is so much bigger 
than this space. So the temple is important. What is going on in the temple is important. But it says, God is still with them. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Okay. And again, this is going to be a um, probably an encouraging message, but possibly also a confusing message because they are used to God dwelling in the tabernacle in the temple. Okay. So they're trying to probably think, oh, how does that work? Or what's going on there? Right. For us today, you know, after Pentecost, we can say, oh, that looks like the Holy Spirit. Right. For them, that idea is not quite uh, captured yet. So they are trying to probably understand what does that mean for God to be with us in spirit? Okay. But it should still be an encouragement to them. It should still be the reminder that God is going to be with them. Does that make sense? Questions about that? All right, let's look at this next prophecy. Or I guess the second, sorry, the second half of this prophecy, you have this other, this little piece from six to nine. It says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. So the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of the hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in his place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Okay? In a little while, the later glory of this house will be greater than the former. Does that look like what's happening in their present circumstance? No, they are not there yet, right? They have not seen the greater glory of the temple. This is going to be uh, and something that is promised that they will, again, this will be one of those things that they're holding on to. They're waiting for the day that the later glory will be, um, the, temp- the glory of the temple is going to be bigger than the former temple, okay? And there's going to be some other things that come along with that. Right, the these resources are going to be coming in from all parts of the world. So again, it's supposed to speak to their um, their prosperity as a people group. Because remember, part of the the promise that has so far in the Old Testament, what it's looked like, as they are prosperous, they are politically prosperous. Right, their provision and protection is in the the eyes of these kingdoms and in the monarchy that has taken place. So they are going to, again, think about, man, I remember the days of David and Solomon. I remember reading about those times and hearing about those times and all the the wealth that the kingdom was going to have. That's what it's supposed to look like, right? It's supposed to look bigger than that, better than that. So this is what they're going to be hoping for, okay? And again, you're going to have this tension of this, what we call prophetic telescoping. It says words like in a little while, right? Well, what does a little while mean? Is that next year? Is that in five years? They are going to continue to ask this question. 
They're waiting for this to happen, right? When they get the temple done and they dedicate the temple, there's probably some of them that are thinking about this and they're waiting for the glory of God to come and descend and make this space even greater than it was before. And they're waiting for the day where they will no longer be governed by a foreign government, but their kingdom is going to be greater than it was before. So this is this hope that is churning with them as they're as they're building, as they are preparing, they are waiting to see this thing fulfilled. So when is it fulfilled? When is this come? You know, as we look at these prophetic telescoping and we can see there are moments when we are able to see from our vantage point what they could not see, right? So we have a couple options to think about as these things are fulfilled. And these are just off the top of my head. I did not do a lot of research into these fulfillments, so hold this lightly. But first, the first thing that came to, came to mind was Herod's temple. Do they think that once Herod remodels the temple and it gets bigger and the walls are bigger and everything, is that a fulfillment of this prophecy? So this is as, you know, as you get into the New Testament, you can think about, well, is this what this means, this prophecy? Is that the fulfillment when Herod builds the temple? Maybe, maybe not. Obviously, you have the life of Jesus, right? Jesus, there's going to be moments in the Gospels where Jesus is going to re-enter the temple, and there's going to be a lot of expectation and thought about that, and there are probably people thinking, this is it. This is the glory that was talked about. This is what's supposed to happen. But the challenge with that, right, Jesus is going to be doing some of these things and saying some of these things, but it doesn't quite look like that because these nations are not going to become, are not coming with the silver and gold like the rest of the prophecy talks about, right? So there's this challenge. Is that figurative? Is that literal? So is there still more to wait for? Or has the kingdom come? Is Jesus changing the paradigm of what that looks like for the glory of the Lord to fill the temple? And is the greater, is it greater glory now than it was then? So it could be completed in Jesus or the, you know, third option that there's still more to be done, that there's going to be a day when those things will possibly more literally happen. Okay. And this is why in our churches, you have different uh, perspectives about what this looks like, right? There are some people that they're waiting for the day that everything's going back to Jerusalem and Jerusalem is going to have its former glory. There's another perspective that says, no, that is not a literal, literal language. It is figurative language and it's talking about what we call the church age. Okay. But again, we don't know. I don't know. I can't say that definitively. I have my perspective and my thoughts on that, but I'm going to hold that lightly. And I'm going to say, I am looking for the day. You know, I think Jesus fulfills a lot of that, but there is still some question marks for me of what does that look like? What does it mean for this later glory to be greater than the former? And I'm going to continue to press into that and continue to pray about it and research it because I would, I would love to understand more about um, 
how God wants us to uh, view that today. Any questions on that? And again, remember, no matter how we, we view that exact fulfillment and what's coming, we need to remember that God is, he is working and he is fulfilling his promises. And if we doubt that in any way, if we're confused about that, we can always look back at the rest of Scripture and see all the times where God has fulfilled His promises. So it's always this ability to look back as kind of a proof to say, is God really who He says He is? Well, if He's been that, you know, for the last thousand years, He's probably good for the next little bit, okay? So we're able to step forward in faith, step forward with these mysteries when we don't quite know how it's going to play out because we can look back and we can see all the different times God has showed up. We can see all the different times that God is faithful. And I can see that through the biblical account. I can see that through church history. I can see that through the testimony of different people within the church, within YWAM. And I can see that in my own life. So I can take all those things and those help me build my faith. Those help give me the courage I need with the guidance of the Holy Spirit to be able to push forward into those mysteries when I'm not sure of what's going to happen next or how it's going to finish, right? All right, let's look at this next prophecy. Same old question. First question, when is this prophecy take place? Yep. Last detail. There you go. Yep. So the second year of Darius and the ninth month of the 24th day, or yeah, the 24th day of the month. So that's when this one's taking place. There's still this progression of time. Okay. So it seems that Haggai is moving chronologically. He's continuing to move forward. And who is being spoken to this time? Good job. It says, ask the priests. So he's going to be talking to the religious leaders this time. And then if you guys want to read ahead, or if you can remember, what is being talked about? Okay, so we have some offerings. Good. What else? Uh, what verse? Okay. So this one we're looking at verse uh, 10 through 19. Mm hmm. Good. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? 
Right. So they are going to be sacrificing unclean things, and Haggai is going to correct them. He's saying, why are you giving these unclean things to God? You are supposed to be honoring him with the best things, right? And there's all these rules that they should know, rules about what to sacrifice and what not to sacrifice. And rather than doing that, they are giving unclean things. And he says, do you think that God is going to bless this? Do you think that this is good work? And he's going to remind them, no, it's not. You are not showing God honor, right? Uh, what else is happening in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah? What's one of the big things that's happening that also contributes to this idea of kind of unclean or um, dealing with things that are holy and unholy? Do you remember? It's the last part of Ezra, or the second half of Ezra, I guess. What is he, he, Ezra's got to deal with this one big social problem. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, you guys got it. The mixed marriages, right? So with these mixed marriages, you have this, also this mixing of religion. And so I think this is also kind of alluding to that, that you are supposed to be set apart. You are supposed to be clean and this should happen in your worship and in your lives and you are not following that out. And as the priests, they, are, they should be the ones holding the standard, right? Encouraging the people towards this holiness, teaching them if they're ignorant about the law, um, what to do. And it appears they are not doing um, what they need to be doing. Okay. So he is going to remind them and give them a correction about what it means to be clean and what needs to be given as an offering and also to keep building. So there's again, you have this correction specifically to the religious leaders about you need to help keep the people on track. You need to keep them focused on what it means to give right worship. You need to warn them when necessary, when they're in these relationships that are not God honoring. And you need to keep working towards the, the building of the temple. Any thoughts, any questions on that one? All right, one more. So just at the end of chapter 2, when is this one? Boom. You guys are getting the hang of it. All right, who is the prophecy being spoken to? Yep. Speak to Zerubbabel. And then what is the main idea of the prophecy? Okay. Yeah. The, the overthrow the kingdoms, but basically the idea that I have chosen you. Right? Is the, it is the reminder that out of everything that's going on, I choose you. I'm choosing you. You are still my chosen people. And there is a day coming where I'm going to continue to fulfill these promises that I've given you as the covenant people, right? So you are not 
always going to be in this in this bondage. You are going to be um, restored to this um, to this place that I have promised you, right? This place of provision and protection. Okay. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, I've I purposefully uh, hid the answer for a little bit because I I want you guys to think. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, and so uh, one of the other things, though, that is challenging about this, and again, this is going to go, you're shortly living in this tension because you're already in Matthew, but it's going to be add to the confusion of the New Testament is here, again, it feels like the kingdom that is coming is this political kingdom, right? The overthrow of the kingdom sounds like these foreign pagan nations are going to be taken over. Right? You got to, so then you wrestle with the ministry of Jesus. Is he going to overthrow Rome? Spoiler alert, Rome's still there after Jesus' ministry is done, right? So there is this tension. You have all this language in the Old Testament, even at the end of the Old Testament, about how God is going to come and restore the people. And part of that restoration seems to be like, a political restoration. So the language of kingdom is going to be very, um, come with a lot of expectation, right? Remember, like I said uh, earlier in the week, this week is all about understanding expectations, right? What are the expectations that they had? Well, one of the expectations they had was that they were a political, politically chosen to be in this place and to be taken care of and that God was going to somehow above all odds going to help establish them and now reestablish them as this chosen people. Okay, so when Jesus comes, you have to figure out when he says the kingdom is here, what does that mean? Is the kingdom here? Well, not in the way they thought. Right, so you have two two directions you can go with that. Either the kingdom is not there yet, or there's still some kind of a waiting for that, or the kingdom is here, like he said, but now it looks different. Right? But it doesn't look like before. Right? There is the the and again, if you, you go back to the Davidic covenant, go back to Kings and Chronicles and read that history, that's what they're waiting for. Right, That's what they think is going to happen. And then Jesus is going to be speaking all these words, connecting himself to these Old Testament prophecies, these old events, and it's going to look different. Right, How Jesus establishes himself will look different. And why is that hard for them? Why is that so confusing? It's because of all this. It's because over and over again, God is going to be using this language that is consistent with how they have understood God to interact with them, and it's going to be continuing to do that. Okay? So this is the tension that they're going to live in. So, two quick chapters with multiple prophecies, and so we're just going to pause again, and I want you to think about, is there anything that you can connect to our lives today? Is there anything in these prophecies 
about worship, about encouragement, about either the leaders or the people, perhaps about the future kingdom, any of these things that speak to you. That's really good. How many people need to work on how to prioritize your day in your life? <laughs> that's, that's, that's me looking in the mirror, or looking in the camera, I guess. Every day of my life, I could, at the end of the day, I'm like, man, I definitely could have picked some other things, you know. And again, it, it feels, in one way, it's like, ah, oh, tomorrow's another day, I got another chance. Uh, and I think that is true, but I think there are moments where I need those more of those stern encouragements like Haggai is giving those leaders and saying, man, you can do better. You know, you know better. And I do know better. And I should, uh, I should be able to continue to grow. And I need uh, good people around me. I think one of the things that uh, I want to do as an application for myself uh, after this week is uh, in our church, we have kind of small groups and we have confession every week. And this is this cool opportunity to share where we need help, where we've seen, you know, the Holy Spirit convicts us and say, yeah, I can do that better. I can do this better. But what I've realized is I have not done a good job at 
um, looking for help as I'm trying to repent for those things. I realize, just like uh, the guy who mentored me, Ron, was so good at keeping me accountable and pushing me forward, I need to do better at looking for people within my church um, that can help me with those things. You know, So reaching out to people and saying, yeah, I would love to get better at time management, you know, and how do I put God first? So I'm going to make a plan and try to spend some time praying in the morning. Can you text me, you know, sometime in the morning and just say, hey, did you already start your day or have you stopped to pray? You know, and and have somebody that's willing to maybe even get a little angry with me and say, what are you doing? You know better than that. You know, we've been talking about this for however long or whatever that is. I think those things are are important. That's really good. Cool. All right, last chance to share any applications before we go on to the next thing. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Yeah. Add another sticker to the computer that says "Get her done." This is maybe with a different. Uh, a different context in mind, right? That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, let me pray real quick for us over that. Father, I thank you for small books. Thank you for those simple messages that can be profound. Those reminders that we need day in and day out. How to respond to being chosen. Thank you, Lord, that you choose us. Thank you that you uh, give us a rich history. I pray that in those moments, um, as we go throughout the rest of our week, the rest of our school, that you would help uh, encourage us and refine us, that our priorities would be your priorities, that our um, energy and focus would be renewed today as we um, get a reminder from Haggai that you are with us to do the hard things. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Another book in the books. We're going to start on Malachi because we've got a couple minutes left. Like I said, we are going to wait on old Zechariah till tomorrow. I'm going to try to shed or give some information about the more confusing visions and things like that. But the reality is with some of those things, we don't know, and I don't think, uh, especially for as fast as you guys are going through Scripture, it is super profitable to spend a lot of time how to identify all the horns or the horses or whatever the things are. There's lots of books. There's lots of information to look at for those things. But I hope more than anything that you are able to capture the the overall message or the feeling of the books like Zechariah that are going to feel confusing, you know, and possibly challenging. But in this read and this go through that we would take the, the heart of the book and leave some of the details maybe to later. Does that make sense? All right. So we are going to start with old Malachi and uh, his name first. It means either my messenger or my messenger of Yahweh, depending on how it's translated. This is one of those books 
that the date is not specified, but it seems to fit in this post-exilic era. There are multiple books, uh, especially in the Minor Prophets, that don't exactly have a timestamp. Right? In Haggai, you have down to the month when these prophecies are given. Right? On this month, on this day, this is what's being said. Here, it's ambiguous. It's vague. It says, these, the Lord is speaking. Well, when is the Lord speaking? So some of the things that we can look at are the message that he's giving, uh, you know, some of the content we can try to figure out, okay, when does this fit in what's going on? And again, be willing to maybe hold those things a little bit more loosely than when you have these solid timestamps like you do in the book of Haggai. So if you look with me in Malachi chapter 1. Yeah, the old Maliki. Uh, 1, 6 through 14. It's going to be uh, mentioning some sacrifices in the temple. So what does that mean? If they are, If he is bringing correction to about how the how things are being offered what does that what does that tell us about the time period what do you guys think if malachi is bringing correction on how to worship in the temple what does that tell us about the setting of the book possibly where it's at Okay, good. So it's probably got to be somewhere around Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. All right. What else does that tell us? Congratulations. Yeah. The temple's got to be there. Right. So it's either during the first temple when the temple's still around, or it is somewhere after they have established at least the altar and are building the temple or possibly the temple is already reconstructed and they've dedicated it and the temple is functioning again, okay? So you have these two potential time periods, but it probably is not during the time when the temple is destroyed, right? Because they don't have a temple to worship at. So why would they need correction um, for that? Excuse me? Yeah, uh, where? Yeah, so even that's a, I'm, I'm not sure if this is your point, but it is a good point of mentioning the idea of a governor because in the first, the first king or the pre-exile, right, you have kings. You don't have governors, right? The rulers are the king. Now in post-exilic times, they're ruled by a foreign nation and you, the people that are in control of Jerusalem are going to be governors, right? So that would maybe speak to more of this post-exilic time that we're in, right? That's a good, that's another good detail. Okay. So we can look at that and we can say, okay, we're not exactly sure when, but it's probably in this, you know, in this uh, time frame that we're in now, in this post-exilic time with these other books. 
Another thing that we can look at that maybe leads us towards that is this idea of, uh, in the book of Malachi, he is going to be addressing some of the same issues that are coming up in the other books. So we can say, all right, the same historical setting is um, relevant now, right? In the old pre-exile, one of the big deals is idolatry. There's not so much talk about outright idolatry here, right? There's a different, kind of a different problem being addressed, different things that are being talked about. Again, you have uh, the problems with intermarriage that's being brought up. You have, if you remember in Nehemiah, you have some of the temple leaders and they're distorting the temple resources. They're either taking them or kind of uh, manipulating that. So you have the cheapening of the tithe, social, ex- social exploitation, and then misuse of the Sabbath, and then perversion of the sacrificial system. system. All these things are talked about in other parts of these post-exilic books. And so with those two things, we can say, all right, we don't exactly know when it happens, but probably happening in this later time period. So we're going to put it in this later later group. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Great. All right, so... In this book, we have, um, in one one, it's going to talk about the, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So again, you're going to have these uh, places where I feel like you can divide up the book. Um, but it's not quite as specific. There was a very clear pattern in Haggai. Malachi feels to me, and Zechariah also, it's hard to kind of tell. Is this a new Oracle, is this a new message or is this more of the same message? And so we're going to have to kind of work our way through the text and be a little bit more um, detailed in how we're going to approach these things. So the first one I have going from chapter 1, verse 2 through verse 5. Okay, and I'm going to read that one real quick. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Okay, so this is the initial message that is happening in Malachi. And it seems kind of weird because it's bringing up uh, Jacob and Esau. Does anybody remember those guys? Who? Uh, so these are the first, uh, the first sons, and you have two nations that come from them, right? Jacob is the tribe or the people of Israel. And then you have Esau who become the people of Edom, right? The Edomites. And does anybody, did you guys, I don't even know if you really touched on it, but in Obadiah, you have 
uh, a little bit more information about the Edomites. Can anybody tell me something about them that maybe they remember? Mm. Okay, so they are anti- antagonistic towards the Israelites. Good. Uh, yeah, that's really good, especially for such a small book. Uh, uh, and then the other thing about them is where they live. They lived up in the mountains, and their their the actual place where they live was very strong. It was very fortified, so it was different than Jerusalem. You know, the the whole story of the people of Israel is this story of they need God to show up all the time because their army is never big enough. They're in a kind of a vulnerable spot. Um, so God is going to need to be present as their provider and their protector. Edom is able to have some pride in their where they actually live because it's going to be very fortified. They're up in the mountains. And so they kind of think nobody's able to take us here because of, of where we live and how we're living. And so that's why both in Obadiah and here, you're going to have reference to them kind of pridefully speaking about, you know, nobody can touch us and we're going to be, we're going to rebuild and we're strong. And God is going to uh, bring a correction to that. And there is a tension here where it talks about God loving a son and hating a son. And we need to remember that is not, necessarily talking about relationally, but this has has to do with from the perspective of the covenant people. So he's speaking, he, he is speaking to the covenant people and he's saying, I chose you. I chose you to be my people. And so it's not that he, remember the whole purpose of the chosen people is that they would be, they're blessed to be a blessing. So he's not exclusively saying, I want bad things to happen to the rest of the world. But he is reminding the people of God specifically that I chose you and you are special, right? And why do they need to remember this right now? Well, they need to remember it because their city is destroyed and their walls are destroyed and people are oppressing them. So they need to be reminded that God is with them, that God chose them, that they are the covenant people of God and that Edom is not are not those people. And of course, they're able to see that um, to your point of they have remembered when Edom has been antagonistic to them. They have opposition that is happening around them. And so God is reminding them, I'm going to take care of you, right? I am with you. And so this is where the book of Malachi is going to start. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds right. That what? Yeah, right. Because because they didn't help them, God says, you're not allowed to have any part of me. Different than some of the other people that are foreigners that are going to recognize who God is. God is going to say, I want to bless and honor you because you recognized who I am. And again, the... Another message that is being communicated here is that God is bigger than even the borders of Israel. Right? It says, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So again, this is a recurring message, a recurring theme that they need to understand, that God is bigger than just the city. God is bigger than just this geographical place. 
he is still able to move all things. He is able to interact with all nations. Okay, And again, this is hard for them to see probably because they are not sovereign. Right? They have the Persians that are over them. They have these other people oppressing them. And so it's going to be harder and harder to remember, oh yeah, God does have control of the situation. God is with us. So they are going to be reminded here at the beginning of Malachi. Verse 